Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 44 of Conquering Columbus. We got a great interview lined up for you today. We were lucky enough to have two guests with us, and uh, we'll jump into that here in a little bit. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. And one last thing before we get this episode rolling, conquerors, we want to hear from you. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today, we're fortunate enough to have two of Columbus' most influential people in business, and uh, these two women are behind some of the biggest, most innovative businesses here in the city. Lisa Stein, founder and owner of Revolutions, Inc. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing today? Terrific. And uh, Pamela Springer, founder and former president and CEO of Mata, as well as current CEO and board member at Oris Intel. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you doing today, Pamela? Great. And it was Manta. And Manta. you forgot, Lisa's the founder of Oris as well. So, there you and go. And 
and that's why we're already learning things. Things. <laughs> <laughs> awesome so to kick things off um we usually like to go chronologically and start back at the beginning and try to get a general idea but i also like to hear before we do that kind of what your typical day looks like today um, from walking into the office to the different projects that you're working on so maybe a high level from both you and kind of what that looks like sure pam why don't you start well i'm uh I had a great day today. Uh, we're having a great quarter. So um, today specifically, we were actually signing contracts. So it was a lot of fun. But my day is um, still dealing with a lot of details. You know, strategizers are still the implementers. You know, we have a cast of 16 people, which is great. But um, it's it's in a lot of details. So today in particular, there were new accounts needing to be assigned. Um, we had a debrief of a release that didn't go so well last week in terms of what happened and what we learned from. Um, so it's details kind of things for me. And I have been at this particular, my Revolutions, the uh, company, for 20 years. So I'm, I'm lucky to be at the point where I have a um, full senior team so I don't get dragged um, into the weeds. I'm able to separate more strategy from doing, although I was just overdoing, so maybe I'm just kidding myself. <laughs> but um, so I get to spend more of my time uh, strategically. This morning, um, I was um, working on some projects that have to do with long-term strategy for the company. And, uh, and then uh, this afternoon, I was working on some community things because I serve on several boards, so my day is usually split probably about 80% business and maybe 20% other things I'm working on. And then I did have a meeting at the end of the day that was some a uh, little bit more nitty gritty and in the weeds uh, because we have some a key employee who's leaving. So we're doing some transitional work. So uh, today was good, it was all in the office. It's a jeans day, so I, I, I work standing at a treadmill desk. So today was a day for uh, getting a little bit of a workout in while I was working and uh, no, uh, External calls, no external meetings, which usually makes for a pretty productive day. Been requesting one of those treadmill desks, but all I got was a milk crate on top of a on top of normal sized desk. So <laughs> nothing, nothing treadmill about it. But they raised the height a little bit. So. So you got a standing desk ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I got I some understand. I got some things that needed moved around stacked on my desk where I can put my computer on top of. And are you um, using that? Yeah, I use it every once in a while. It's not too bad. Sometimes I sit down and then just put my feet up on the desk to kind of like stick it to the man and get back to him a little bit. I'm no, <laughs> on a treadmill desk, not a milk crate desk. But, um, so kind of to get back a little bit besides um, where we went to, maybe we'll start at college or um, any, any of the influential years leading up to college that you guys have had and talk about your path to becoming entrepreneurs. Sure. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, so it's what we talked about around the dinner table. My grandfather um, started um, a business when he was in his 30s. My dad went on to run it. They sold it, um, so it didn't go to a third generation, but the business still exists, and we still keep in touch with the people that run it. So um, that's what, what we talked about. It made, um, it produced uh, frozen food products for the institutional food industry, and also we had another company that made the equipment for the food industry and still does. It's called Stein Associates, and it's located in Northern Ohio. So that's what we that's what we grew up. You know, we would all around the dinner table. We would kids would talk about school, and my dad would talk about what he did at work that day. So that's sort of all I knew growing up. I didn't, you know, people they own their own businesses. You know, <laughs> nobody in my world uh, worked for somebody else. So that's sort of what I knew. And and uh, uh, it took of the of the 
I have three siblings of the four of us, three own our own businesses. And, um, and my sister, um, um, hers is off in the heart, she's a teacher. Um, but so I really, I never knew, never occurred to me to do something else. And uh, everything I did in my career was prep for ultimately owning my own business. And um, I too came from a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, my parents uh, immigrated to the US, but when they had their own bus touring company, um, where they would take people in these double-decker buses or these large buses for two, three, four days. Big red ones? And uh, yeah, and the, the nice the, the nice plush ones. Yeah. Whatever. You know, you would go and, and so they sold that then to come to the US um, and really wanted and believed in the land of opportunity. And so they were excited to be here. Um, their sponsor was in Toledo, Ohio, so that's where, where the flag came and uh, was placed. And then since that time, um, I grew up really in a household of average is not that interesting. So it was like, we don't pay you f for money from your grades. It's kind of expected because that's all what you're supposed to be doing. We're not asking you to have a job. You're supposed to be doing well. And so it was sort of like, um, they, want, they were really encouraging of thinking out of the box, you know, um, average isn't that interesting and really supported that. And I loved um, sports. I did a lot of that. Um, and got a college scholarship to play women's basketball at Oakland University. So that was exciting, but it was very much clear to me that whatever you put into something is what you got out of it. So practice made you have good games. And so, and I liked that, and there was a lot of similarities to business in that. You know, whatever you put into it, you should be able to see your way, you know, you should reap those re results. And I liked leading, and I liked being in, involved in that. So sports really drove me into business and then specifically um, into an entrepreneurial route or career where helping um, either start something or take something and then accelerate it um, through a build model as opposed to just operate something. It's not as interesting. And so, um, so that's a little bit about my background. Yeah, yeah, it's something that you just mentioned there about the average not being that interesting. You know, what really caught Mike and I's attention when I was uh, listening to your previous story when you were talking at Startup Grant, um, Tom, our head wrestling coach, kind of has a very similar mental philosophy. And as we begun to interview more and more successful entrepreneurs, it's almost like a philosophy whether they, they say it in different ways all the time, but they all kind of all have it. It's all instinctual too, where it's like being average, just whether it's not that interesting, it's just not that satisfying. And something that Tom used to say to us was that if he, at the end of his, he'd get kind of, um, well, I guess like bleak is the word for it, but he'd say he's laying, in, he thinks about laying in his grave at the end of his life, and being the same as the people next to him, and it makes him sick. That's what he would say. <laughs> and that would be our pre-practice motivation. Right? And that describes him in a T. That's, that's like about hitting the nail on the head of time. That and suffering. Um, but what I wanted to dive into was, how long have you both been here in Columbus then? So I've been here my entire adult life. Um, my husband and I came to Columbus Holy Toledo, let me think about this. 33? It had been 80, 84. So, yeah, 33 years ago. And that was from Northern Ohio, you said? Yeah, by way of Indiana University, which is where I went to school. But yeah, originally from Northern Ohio, and um, never, ever, ever thought we would live in Columbus, Ohio. We came here because he wanted to finish his degree at Ohio State. So we thought, well, we'll be here two years, he'll do that, and then we'll go to a a, um, you know, a real city, and in our mind that was Chicago or Denver, New York, or you know, something bigger, and uh, lo and behold, 
33 years later, we are very happily living in Columbus, Ohio. So ne never expected to be here, but um, we're huge fans of Columbus and love it here. Yeah. So I grew up in the state up north in Michigan. Um, went to school there and then moved to Denver for about three years and I lived in Boston for 10 and then took a job in actually at Jeff Wilkins company with Meditech um, where I moved to Columbus for that and so that was in 93 so I've been here ever since and um, you know and love it as well really love it as well so comparing the different cities that you've spent time in and then comparing especially Boston to like the Columbus area, I mean, Boston's filled with tons of brilliant people in the colleges there. It's just mm -hmm. like a mecca for intelligence and growth. How would you compare living in both those cities um, with Columbus? Well, I lived there when, you know, so I lived there then from in the early 90s, right, in the late 80s. So I would say that it was, it had gone through this boom, especially real estate, and then there was this bust in the early 90s. Um, so it was very, I mean, you know, you would look at the help wanted section at the time in the paper and it was like the thickness of the Columbus Dispatch today, like the entire paper. So it was unbelievable in terms of the opportunities there and, and so you, you were, I mean, you're right, there were, there's lots of opportunities, as I would also say now are in Columbus, you know, you cannot find enough people here, really anywhere. Um, you know, good people are gainfully employed and, and I'd say that you know, tech was definitely the hotbed then and continues to be in Boston, but, you know, Columbus increasingly now is, you know, we're, we're in the beginning of getting our stride. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I lived in Boston twice okay. for a year each time. Yep. And um, the thing that really differentiates Columbus is the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, tech opportunity, mm -hmm. 20 years ago was bigger in Boston, which and probably, you know, you can name a half a dozen other big cities that you'd say the same thing about. Mm -hmm. um, but I never really bonded with Boston. I found the people challenging. I mean, it's the Midwest, right? Columbus is just uh, such an easy place to live and it's an easy place to get anywhere. And culturally, I found it very easy to find places here that were strong cultural fit for how I wanted to work, and I found it easy to create a company here that has a culture, to create the company culture here that's consistent with with what I wanted to create. And I'm not sure that would have been as easy in Boston. I, I, I never forget, um, I ran, a, one year I ran a division of Cardinal Health, when I worked for Cardinal Health, I ran a division of Cardinal Health that was in Boston. And another year I was there running a division of what is now Fitch, but was called Richardson Smith at the time. And in both cases I would frequently walk away thinking, just having had an interaction with somebody in, in work that made me realize how very differently they approach life than, than how the general populace in Columbus does. And, and uh, in one case, really um, drove us to move the division back to Ohio because you just couldn't sort of, I, I mean, clearly people succeed there, but it wasn't the way I wanted to work. Mm -hmm. um, I just, from a, from a straightforward Midwestern values, you can't beat Columbus, Ohio. You know, Columbus is very special for all those various attributes. I was there for, I loved that. I was there for 10 years. Um, 
I find the people, initially they're standoffish, but then, boy, they're friends for life. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, they kind of have their arms crossed in front of you, and then you got to kind of earn your stripes. You're not giving your stripes right away. must have been year two. I was only there year one. <laughs> Very well, right. You're yeah. kind of on a long trial. <laughs> I love it, though. I think, you know, we talk about this all the time about the culture of Columbus and mm -hmm. how when you're here, you can just tell that people are, you know, very welcoming, and everyone's, uh, I guess the word would be proud to be from Columbus, Ohio. And I, I think almost everybody's trying to prove themselves in a way. I mean, the city is up and coming, and I think that there's a lot of people who still don't feel like Columbus is a spot to be, like a Boston or Chicago or New York City. So I think um, a lot of people who are out there grinding every day really hold that at heart, and they understand that we're, that's kind of a reputation. Mm -hmm. But my, my only... Um, my only understandings of what Boston is like are like movies, Goodwill Hunting in the Town. So I hold it in this like realm of mysticalness. I'm like, oh, Boston must be amazing out there. So, well, I, I what is it? <laughs> so, so your entire perspective of Boston is from Ben Affleck, and, That's right. and uh, he does a great job. Martin. He does a good job. <laughs> and uh, but I can imagine that um, perspective of learning what people like that areas would like would help you in, in business in the future and kind of like you because I've never spent a lot of time in other cities like that. So I would think that that would if I could learn that other people are like that, it would probably be pretty beneficial in, in an entrepreneurial setting. Would you both agree with that? Is that did your time in those areas shape that pretty well? Yeah, and I think what's really different is West Coast, though, in terms of that's probably more striking than East Coast. Um, I mean, you get you do get nuances. There's three flavors. We're you know Neapolitan, whatever that ice cream, mm -hmm. right? I think they are distinct flavors. And if you're here in the middle or wherever you are, and you're trying to hire the other regions, it is different, and you should be mindful of that for sure. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So maybe to kick it back a little bit, what did you both study in college, and then we'll talk about. Um, Maybe each take a little bit of time to talk about your career paths up to starting your first company. Yeah, sure. Uh, I am a geek. I have an undergraduate degree in quantitative business analysis and an um, MBA in market research and a master's degree in statistical analysis. So I was a complete numbers geek. And the undergrad was Indiana? And grad. So they had okay. a combined program. Okay. So I was able to power through and get it done in uh, one less year. By combining um, the program, I was um, uh, I liked math. I hated school. I wanted. I was anxious to get out and get going and do my own thing. So I, I my goal was, you know, powering through. In hindsight, um, I'm certain I would have gotten a lot more out of my MBA if I had um, worked for a few years. You know, had some work experience before I got there. But I was. Um, they offered this gift of one less year. You basically started your graduate level classes your first year. So it was an intense four years. Um, I'll never live down um, calling my parents one March, uh, late March night um, in 1981 and lamenting how I was trying to study for this K-501 exam the next morning and how there was some basketball game going on and the entire campus was erupting. Well, it was the it was the championship. <laughs> Completely over my head. I was just really irritated that I couldn't study for this, you know, stats test that I had the next morning. This 500 level stats class when I was a freshman. So, um, so I powered through and and uh, but I loved that and it, I, it was really prepared me well for what came next. Um, I went into the market research field here in Columbus, and, and Columbus was a hotbed for market research, and that was just a gift that I ended up here, and really one of the reasons we ended up staying. Um, there was interesting work being done here, and then I, I, I um, quickly moved from a market research firm 
um, that was a generalist to and got recruited to one that was doing retail work and then um, ended up working for um, a company called Richard Smith, which at the time was really one of the coolest companies of its kind in the in the U.S. It was an industrial design firm. This was at the height of um, really the time when industrial design was changing the way people thought about product design, and and um, and Fitch was uh, well, it's now called Fitch. It was purchased. Fitch bought Richardson Smith, but at the time we were working with Dean Richardson and Dave Smith and hundred of the most creative people you'd ever want to meet in your life and it was up in this wonderful space in this old barn back in the countryside right outside of Mount Air. If you've ever driven up 315 past 270 past where Hills Market is on the right all the way up there there's this great spot back there before everybody built up on, on 315 and it's as beautiful on the countryside and and um, it was this marriage of creative people and, and, and data people coming together to help Fortune 5 companies um, do new product development. So it was a great place to, to learn the best. So I came in it from a market research perspective, working in a world full of designers. I very quickly learned that uh, you know, a little bit of data speak, went a long, data speak went a long way, but you had to be able to translate it for them. And I think it was that skill of of coming at it from a data perspective, but then really being surrounded by these brilliantly creative people who helped me develop this very much more balanced brain about business. I'm a very different business person than I would have been if had I gone straight into some sort of a, you know, um, a consumer product goods company where the data-driven side of me would have been um, encouraged as opposed to broadened. So um, I credit that experience with really changing the way I think about everything. And it's interesting, you know, how that's always something I'm interested in, sorry, not to not to interrupt before Pam talks, but um, is how different experiences have shaped um, successful individuals. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting point that, hey, if you get a diverse experience, something different than um, what you're used to, uh, it could totally change your career. Oh, it's no, there's no doubt about it. It changed how I think. Mm -hmm. I went from being a quant geek to it... it to, to more fully appreciating the, the full side of business, and which turned out to be perfect training for the internet, which is where I spend all my time because the internet is a marriage. The, the science, the math side of the marketing and the internet is all data driven. But that doesn't exist without the creative side because it's a physical interaction. There is no, there's, it's not a, there's not a human interaction there. It's a, a marketing interaction. Um, with people so if you don't have both pieces of those if you can't appreciate that both of those things have to exist it's very difficult to succeed even the work that's happening in Oris the the tools and the way people interact with the tools are are as important as the data because if it's not easy to use they won't use it so I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not trying to steal Oris no. thunder but but really from the beginning you know so so we've always paid attention to both those things from the beginning and that came all the way back from working with some of the best design minds in the country it was truly a gift to me and uh, I think there were people that, you know, I watched my friends going off. This was when finance was, and the consumer product goods was the big, or the, were the big sexy jobs coming out of MBA. And I sort of watched all my friends go off and do that. And I thought, eh, maybe I'm, I'm working for the small design firm. And in hindsight, um, it was a gift. Because mm -hmm. the UI was so important. Because the UI was critical to what was going to come down the road for me. Yeah. And they taught me how to look at design by watching them take the data that I gave them, them being the designers, take the data that I was able to craft mm -hmm. and then Actually, turn it into design mm -hmm. was, was um, I wouldn't have gotten there on my own. 
That's an interesting experience. I, my background, my undergrad was in theoretical math, and then I spent some time in a graphic design company afterwards. And I do, I, I do felt you know the same. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I didn't think I spent enough time there to um, really develop my skills to what they need to be, but they did help me open my creativity and think of a total different light. Because I, I struggle really hard, kind of just branching out of things that aren't analytically structured and kind of just thinking outside of that box. And uh, it's hard to admit when you're not good at something. It's just not something that I, I wasn't that good at and I'm still, you know, need to develop it. But it's interesting to hear someone else say that with that background, so. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought I was going to be this, you know, I don't know. Actually, I'm not sure. I, I thought I was going to do my own thing, but I thought it was going to be data-driven. I thought it was going to be business. I was worried about the balance sheet, right? I was worried about the, about the profit statement. I wasn't so much worried about what the product development was going to be. But boy, that changed. And I always uh, gravitated towards... Um, you know, sales um, primarily because I felt like I could control that initially um, so that, you know, as it became something larger, you know, I think nothing happens before you sell something. So, um, you know, and as it pertains to being able to interpret what that means and help. So I started out with um, selling software products, um, things that were on microfiche initially. That was before you were born, I think, probably. <laughs> and then blank books, blank books from the other side like of the table. In the basement of the library or the microfiche. You must have been negative years old. Should you we spell? Look a day over 20. Do we need to spell that for you, yeah, microfiche? There's not F-I-S-H, right? And so, you know, typically always in emerging tech, um, selling and loved that because I could control it. So I had my own little company was my territory. And, you know, I would um, try to figure it out. I would try to improve the messaging. I would try to, everything corporate would give me, I would try to, you know, make the most out. And that proved to be very good. I could count on myself. And then you count on your team, of course, to produce the products and all that. And then you learn, you know, how then you can help do more as you get more responsibility and, you know, become a better uh, manager and, and all those things over time. But I gravitated towards you know, wanting to be able to drive as fast as I could. I knew I could count on myself to go do that. And sales was the first place that I could have my own business within my territory is how I thought about that. And I, and I loved it, you know, I loved it. And you progressed through different sales roles until you ended up in Columbus. Um, mm -hmm. When you were with Jeff at, what, which company you said? Meditech. Meditech. What was your experience like there going through that company? Um, so I was the first remote salesperson they hired. I was in New England. I was in Boston then, and um, it was great. So I became an individual contributor, and then I moved here, and I was, then I ran the sales organization. That was over seven years, and we actually IPO'd, which was a great experience. And then um, the, the, the environment changed, and so they decided to sell some of the business that I was interested in and keep the senior manufacturing, and so I then left Meditech after seven years. But it was a great, it was an unbelievable run. It was fabulous experience from Again, um, early days CD-ROM in 1990 when you know people really didn't think about CD-ROM into then taking that through an IPO and then kind of being also on the backside of that. You know, CD-ROM I think had a 10-year lifespan and we hit it just right. Um, and it was a wild, it was a great run, and I have a lot to be grateful for there. A lot of good people, um, and and then took that again into into again running typically then sales organizations to really figuring out I really liked the early stage part versus the more mature part because there was a stage in there where I our company was actually acquired so I've been through three acquisitions as well 
we were acquired and we were part of a large organization, a publicly traded organization where I had 200, I had $200 million quota, I had like 70 salespeople, you know, where you're in charge of North America and that's a whole different kind of job than, you know, something where you have like a 10 or 20, 20 person sales team. So um, as you start to think about what your to-do list is like, you know, you, you're much more in the people business in a large organization versus where you can still influence some things and understand what you really started to like. And then that took me into what was uh, the precursor to Manta, which was EC Next, where they had um, six months of cash left, they had four customers and 12 employees, and they were still trying to figure out the business model to get the thing to work. And so I went in there as VP of sales, and the nice thing is was the investors were very honest in terms of what will it take to for them to continue to invest, and a lot of it had to do with the pipeline and deals, and I said, well, I think I can influence that. Fortunately, I could, and then. Um, Do you remember some of the key things you went through to help that influence? Part of it was we were getting a lot of people stuck in the pipeline at like 50%, and they were not ready to make the commitment. And so, understanding what was that friction point, why were not, why wouldn't they take the next step? And a lot of it was, you know, the internet in 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 2000 and well, 2003 was there, but Google was still young. And so what we were doing then was working with publishers like McGraw-Hill and saying, you know, spend $100,000 for me to develop your website. I'll take all your content, break it up into pieces, charge you five or $10,000 monthly fee, and then I'll charge you 5% revenue share. And what I did was flip it. I said, no upfront fee. We'll live and die by our performance, but we want 50% of everything we sell. And that eventually turned it where we took that friction of that $100,000 off the table and said, if you're so good at breaking it up and marketing it and then doing direct marketing back into those lists, we should be rewarded for that. And um, so that's eventually what flipped that. But while that was going on, so there was a big, so we went from $100,000 guaranteed payment to nothing initially. And so of course you got to figure out who the profile of an A account is there and you always offer it to the wrong people first. And so <laughs> you're doing all this free work and it doesn't end up on the back end like you mm -hmm. thought. But then, you know, through that time, um, uh, we had an opportunity really then to evaluate and, um, you know, I got Manta out of that because it was a situation where I sat next to a woman at a conference and I asked her what she was solving for and she was the VP of third party sales for Dun & Bradstreet and she said I have a bunch of credit reports and I'm looking for distributors, you know, basically sell my credit reports and every quarter send me a check based upon what you sell. And I thought, well, we could, you know, as we think about what we're doing, we could launch our own site on our platform and do that. It's a very thin value proposition, but we'll listen and we'll learn and iterate. And so we did that. We signed a contract with Dun & Bradstreet. We picked the name Manta. It went live two months later. And, you know, we then iterated and learned from there. But, um, but I started out as, 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 as VP of sales there. We proved the model. The CEO was fired um, for a number of reasons, but mostly he did not understand customers. He stayed behind his, the, the the Excel spreadsheet, the, finan the finances, and that's kind of where he was very comfortable, which was, doesn't work in a startup. You gotta be kind of out there. So they did a search, they put me in, and then uh, I was able to change that economic model to 50% and then figure out the Manta thing from there. Yeah, and so one thing you said during that really struck me and it reminded me of a conversation we had last week. You mentioned that you like working in startups, you like the beginning stage. And I think that serial entrepreneurs are kind of like that. They always like the beginning stage. And uh, what it reminded me of was, um, we interviewed Chris Warner, I don't know if you know Chris, 
Um, Doug introduced us to him. He climbs mountains and dug over Pelotonia, and he climbs mountains and stuff. But one thing he said was that when we asked him why he keeps climbing mountains, he says when the risk of failure is real and present is when he feels the most alive. <laughs> and so I guess my thought process was maybe that's what creates a serial entrepreneur is you get to a point in a business where it's grown to a point that it's like, well, the business probably isn't going to fail anymore. And they kind of lose that sense of uh, excitement, maybe. And well, I, I think your to-do oh, list changes. Right. Absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your to-do list changes, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, Manta had 170 people. We were doing extremely well. And what my day was like, I was worried about different things. Granted, you still have your strategy and external things, but there were different things that, than when you're early on really trying to survive and figure it out. And then the rush of, you know, the good or the bad um, is, you know, is quite invigorating. But ultimately for me, it's building the team that is extra special. I, I mean, I care about the product, but it's almost secondary though to the team. Um, the product has to pass certain mustard, but it's really that opportunity to work, to find it, build it. And it's that team though that for me is exciting. Well, and I think there's something very addictive about identifying a market opportunity and then validating it, mm -hmm. which is that startup. So that that's the win. It's, it's like a drug hit. I mean, you know, <laughs> my God, I was that was great. I want to feel that way again. I want to find another win. You know, yeah. I want to launch it and and uh, and and how fast and then and it's competitive too. We launched. Um, Revolutions, which is an you know an e-commerce site predominantly called SpinLife.com. It's the business. I mean, Revolutions is the holding company, but the the business is SpinLife. Um, we were you know it was on the internet. It was early days, so they were competitive. You could see exactly what everybody was doing. It kind of got a feel for how big people were getting, and so it was like, ah, did we win today? Did we sell more than they did today? Did we do a better job this month? And where were the, the you know, so that, and being, so that competitive drive to want to be the best at something and to do something that nobody's ever done before. I think that's what's so interesting about Manta is literally you built a different model. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in e-commerce in our space, nobody had ever done this before. There's, there's a lot of really smart entrepreneurs who, good at, who are good at identifying an opportunity are looking at a model that exists and just doing it better, but even that form of entrepreneurship did not interest me. I was only interested in doing things that nobody had ever done before. So I'm, you know, I think that's that's, that's really great. So I, I would, and I, quite honestly, I don't have that same thing. You know, I, I maybe can see something and then adjust it or whatever based upon the opportunities. Probably um, a lot smarter. No, I don't know. <laughs> but, Certainly a lot less painful. <laughs> but I don't know that I've got the. The, the product, like I don't have that um, innate sense of the next product, right? That's not, I was lucky at EC Next because we were, we just took it and then we iterated, right? It's kind of one of those evolutionary kind of innovations. It's, you know, Picasso versus Cezanne. Have you heard that analogy? Picasso was young and he was explosive and all his innovations and all his paintings show that, whereas Cezanne, we had four iterations, four versions of his um, wife's portrait. None of them were ever done. But he matured later through iterations and iterations and iterations. And that's how Manta was. Manta was, I was, I'll never say that we knew exactly what Manta was going to be. Oh my gosh. We iterated over time, tried to listen and learn. Um, and I think the, that's versus somebody like Lisa. She saw the core of Oris Intel and was able to pull that out and say that's a product. Um, let alone what you do with spin life or revolutions, but I, I, I think there are different types 
Definitely yeah, it's interesting. Pam's, and I think it's one of the reasons why we're good partners for this next business because Pam's a much more patient operator, where I'm a more of a, I see it, I identify it, but I'm not, I don't necessarily have the patience to be as iterative. But I hire, I mean, I find partners who have that patience who are good partners. So what do you find in those iterations that help you continue to improve on the product? Is your ability to see um, feedback from what the consumer is telling you? Is it just understanding that this could be done better and this is how we need to change things? Do you think that you have a good vision for doing those different things? Or what do you think makes you strong in iterations, I guess, if that's the right question? Well, first you have to know what you're solving for. And that's sometimes hard to recognize. So early days you're solving for market validation, right? And then you're looking for uh, you know, customers, right, and then all the, or revenue, we'll say differently, and then all of a sudden you're more interested in gross margin, and then all of a sudden you're more interested in EBITDA, and then maybe you want more critical mass around something, and then maybe you want a revenue mix diversification that you're solving for. It depends on what you're solving for. So you have a different metric as you're going through those different Yeah, yeah I think you have an evolution that you go through, for sure. So Amanda, I guess a little bit about the product that you guys were delivering. Did the product iterate at all, or is it always the same product and goal, just differently? So it started out, basically, the only value you could get to Manta was buying those credit reports. So that's a very thin value prop. This is that big yellow buy button. And it's like, we gotta turn this into a resource because we were getting so much traffic. It's like 99% of the people leave, right? And so how can we make this a resource, make them stay and buy sometimes, but come all the time? You know, and then this whole community piece, you know, as you started to think about it. There's no playbook for that. Right, but that's the beauty of the internet is everything became measurable. Yeah. Right? So you could literally, you look at the funnel and it's like, Every little tweak of every piece of the funnel. How many? How much traffic do I get? How, how do I engage them? How long will they stay? How do they be? So you can watch it, and you can literally start to tweak it, tweak at every level. I think it's one of the things about the internet that is so continues to be so appealing because it's just so measurable. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it even blows my mind in some of our meetings when we can break down where people branched off and how they got to us. You know, what stages, how long yeah. they stayed on one screen. And you just start pulling apart all these pieces and trying to throw in different uh, techniques or. Yeah, but psychographics, you know, where were they before your site, where were they after your site, you know, all that. Why did they leave, where did they go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So maybe talk a little bit more about the process of creating revolutions and how Spin Life has grown. And you said that's Revolutions now a holding company, so do you have other companies besides Spin Life underneath that? We did at one point. Now Spin Life has become so dominant that we really um, sort of merged the other businesses into Spin Life, so it's really just, it's just Spin Life now. You know what, I... Um, Going back to the tail end of the story before where I was talking about having worked for the, the um, design firm, I did think to myself at one point, you know, I probably should get some corporate experience before I go off and do whatever I, it is I'm going to do. So um, Cardinal Health was just this, well, this doesn't translate under the microphone, I mean, the sound does it, it was really a small company uh, at the time, um, uh, public, but, but small. and, and uh, um, there were, I think, 35 people at the corporate office, and I uh, got a call from um, somebody, in, the head of HR. Uh, they were interviewing people, and, and I don't re- even remember how we got connected, but we had, it was one of those fateful meetings where you connect with somebody, and she said, I don't know what we're going to do, what we would do with you, but we, I, we like you, and we think this could be a good fit, and I thought the same thing. I don't really care what I do, but I think this could be a really good fit. It could be a corporate experience. So there were, so um, she said, we'll call you. So three months later, I get a phone call 
and uh, they brought me on board. They created a position, and they brought me on board to do product and service development. There were um, 65 people by that point at corporate, and uh, I was in my office, you know, working on my new task when um, the CEO and founder, Bob Walter, wandered in and um, basically said, hey, get, help get us into the technology, the information business. And at that time, the internet was, um, um, or the, excuse me, not the internet, but the pharmaceutical industry was just starting to do direct-to-consumer advertising. I mean, you guys have not have never known any different world, but there was a time when you could turn on the TV and not learn about um, erectile dysfunction. <laughs> the time I don't want to live in those that times. Was not, that was not <laughs> a concern. Out. I know. Yeah. Yeah, or, or a heart indigestion or whatever uh, uh, other thing that's 90% of what's on TV right now. It was illegal. So it was it had just become legal. So there was this real push in the pharmaceutical industry um, to go direct to consumer. And so we saw that trend. And, and anyway, so you know, basically three weeks into that job, my job changed. And uh, we ended up buying a company in Boston, and I went to Boston and, and to run it, and then ultimately moved it back to Columbus. So I ended up running a, a company at Cardinal that was a, um, a software and hardware product that we produced for the pharmaceutical industry. It was called Health Touch. It was this kiosk, and mind you, this was before wireless. This was when you had to put, all right, this is a step up from the microfiche. This was a floppy disk. Five inch floppy disk. I remember yeah, floppy you disks. remember floppy disks? We'll link the definition in the show notes. That's right. <laughs> so um, we had to update them with literally mailing floppy disks, but we had them all over the country and we got them into uh, Walmart, loved it, and they and uh, had given us the thumbs to expand. So anyway, I was running this technology division. So what I started out doing was very different from what I was doing three years later, and I um, credit that experience and some of the experience I had at the design firm, which really changing to really that really changed how I manage people. Um, they gave me they and specifically I credit Bob Walter totally for giving me sort of ridiculous levels of responsibility relative to what I had certainly to that point proved that I was capable of. Um, I I had uh, and and he. Um, I think appreciated my entrepreneurial spirit and was willing to take a real um, risk on me. And so uh, at my recommendation, he bought a company and moved it back to Ohio and gave me the budget to grow it. And uh, And I will be forever indebted to him for taking that risk uh, on me. As it turns out, Cardinal was exploding during this time. So while I was running this tech company off to the side, they were buying operating um, company after, you know, pharmaceutical um, distribution firm after distribution firm just exploding to be, become one of the largest in the country. And, you know, I sort of looked up one day and there were four, you know, 4,000 people in corporate <laughs> instead of 65. And I thought, oh, this is, I'm not good at this. And, and more importantly, I don't want to become good at this. Like my day used to be all running my little division and it was very entrepreneurial. It was like my show. And then pretty quickly I was pulled into, you know, retreats and succession planning important stuff, all good things they were doing, but so not what I, how I like to spend my day. So um, I, um, I said, okay, I think this is the world telling me it's time to go do my own thing. Bob again was great and would feed me deal flow that would come to him. Um, I didn't fully appreciate this until years later, but he would literally just feed me deal flow that things were, the, the deals that would come to them that were too small for them. And I ended up buying a company that was a small wholesale company in the medical equipment space, and um, you know I put my life savings into this, like you know, 
everything. We banked everything on this little business, and I, st and I got into it in about six months into running this, this wholesale company. I found out I really don't like wholesale. <laughs> really bad thing to find out six months after I'd sort of invested everything in it. So I looked around and said, what do I miss? Well, I really miss the internet. You know, I've been doing early internet work at Cardinal, this technology work. I thought, this is where the future is, and I am going to morph this business to meet what I know I'm good at, which is this balance between analytics and, and marketing. So um, as late as 99 in the industry, which is medical equipment, so think about scooters, those little scooters you see people driving around on, lift chairs, wheelchairs, all kinds of home medical equipment. That's what we sold at this distribution company. Well, as late as 99, nobody was doing this on the web. You know, there's no, there was no Toys R Us, there's no wheelchairs or us. Um, like a Toys R Us of the, of the medical equipment field, so there was nobody online doing it, so it was still a great opportunity. So we raised a little bit more money and we um, launched Spin Life in 2000. Thought we were gonna have, you know, it was dot-com days. It was, whew, it was moving fast and people were throw, literally throwing money at us. We could have raised as much money as we wanted. All you have to do is say you had a dot-com, literally people were willing to write you a check. Luckily, we took angel money instead of venture capital money, because I would not be sitting here talking to you today in this format, certainly, had we taken VC money. Um, but we took angel level money, which meant we kept control. And we were old enough that we didn't, like, back in those, in, in those days, people got these ridiculous investments, and they would throw these massive parties, and they would hire, you know, Michael Jackson to come perform, or they'd give away cars, or just spend it in ridiculous ways. Well, I had two kids and two mortgages. And that money went in the bank and was doled out very carefully. And we sort of figured, knew that we had to sell something for more than we paid for it, which back in 2000 was actually a fairly novel concept in the, in the dot-com <laughs> day. But I was sort of an old lady for the dot-com days. And so um, we thought, you know, we, we started running this, what we thought was going to be this crazy, you know, uh, year to two years and three years. Then we'd sell it and boom, that would be it. Well, 9-11 happened a year later. The dot-com market crashed shortly thereafter, and only 96% of all dot-coms crashed and failed. And um, we had just we had money in the bank, and we said, you know what? I guess I guess I'm not grabbing that that uh, brass ring. Uh, we're just going to have to build a real, a real business. And so we buckled down and leaned down and and uh, and and started to build a real business. Um, we so the wholesale company we still ran that. Then we had the retail, and over the years we started a few, launched a few other retail companies along the way. Um, but here we are, 17 years later, and now we've rolled those back into the core business, and it's um, it's been steady growth. We've grown every year for 17 years, and we're number one in the in the country at what we do, which is kind of fun. So the good news is it's a great business. I have amazing people. Um, we're number one in our space, and um, the bad news is, you know, I really still want to be answering the phones because <laughs> it's that it's that day-to-day -day win that I that I miss. So Oris, Oris Intel came at a really good time because it's really fun to be back uh, in, engaged with the joy of a startup. What I love about the story is it's one of those businesses that a lot of people, I'm sure there's most people in Columbus that don't even know that it's headquartered here just because it's such like vanilla kind of, you know, not not right. like a quote-unquote sexy business to be in, but it's awesome, like you built strong, good concepts, make money, you don't just raise a bunch and then not have any revenues kind of thing, so it's a really cool story to hear. But maybe branching off from that and to talk about 
um, what you guys have going on now with that company and what the future looks like. Yeah, let me give it a two mm-hmm. second and then I'll over to Pam. So Oris came out of the e-commerce world. We were number one in our space and we sell expensive things. And if people couldn't compete with us except on price because we were so far ahead of everybody. So of course they tried to compete on price. And so we were finding that um, we would um, tee up the market, we would sell the customer, we would raise awareness, and then the sale would go someplace else. So um, our manufacturers introduced what's called MAP, which is minimum advertised pricing. Started to become um, a meaningful tool in about 2007 when the U.S. court system validated that a brand could protect its brand equity by controlling the price at which it, the retailers it worked with had to offer it. They couldn't. They, they could set prices below which the retailers um, were not uh, could not offer the product, could not advertise the product, and that changed everything. Um, our, we convinced our manufacturers um, that this was if you were going to protect your brand, that what was good for them and good for us um, would be good for um, the market in the long run because it protected margin. And you know, Amazon.com. Whew, talk about a fast road to the bottom. From a pricing perspective, um, every brand would find itself driven to the bottom if they didn't start to figure out how to protect their margin. So that's all great. It sounds like that's all we needed to do. They they launched MAP. We set our prices at MAP, and and uh, of course everybody promptly found thirty thousand ways to violate MAP. You know, you'd lower your prices Friday at five p.m. when all the manufacturers went home for the weekend, and you wouldn't raise them again till eight a.m. on Monday or you'd say, oh my gosh, my nephew who maintains our website must have made a mistake. It'll take us three or four days to change that. You know, there are a million ways, or, or drop it in the cart to see the lowest price. There's a million ways to, to violate that. So we, um, we write all of our own software ourselves. Um, we've always had a full IT team, and um, one day somebody said, you know, I think we can, I can like, go out at night and we can prowl the web, we can scrape this data, and, and and spit it back the next morning and, uh, and and see who's violating and so we wrote this tool to you know sort of hacked it together over a couple nights to, to, to scrape the web and find out who was violating it. and we would send this email off to our vendors every morning and lo and behold that act of doing that really sort of saved the business um, the manufacturers love the data it it over t- it evolved over time and um, it really um, changed the way our entire industry functioned and made, made for a valid and reasonable um, retail structure in the industry. Um, so we ran that internally for five years and I always thought the whole time along, you know, we cannot be the only ones in this position. I bet this thing really could have some legs, but we were so busy growing our retail business, it was always just this thing on the side. And, uh, and then for a variety of reasons, we finally said, you know, this thing needs to go out on its own. First of all, we we're spending a lot of money on it and I was tired of not getting paid. That was the number one reason. <laughs> and we couldn't have it be in our company and have the vendors we're buying from also turn around and say, oh, by the way, you have to pay for this. So we said, we better spin this out if we're gonna charge for it. And that's where it started. Yeah, and so that was, and so that was what, 2013? Something like that? Exactly. 2013. Right. And uh, fortunately, there was a really talented uh, gentleman, Justin Meats, who's still here. He's now our chief product officer. He was working with Lisa. Yeah, he was our head of marketing. And so he came with it. He has, yep. he has a lot of e-commerce and map background, and so he came with it, helped to find something, business plan, this kind of stuff, and really was the sole person in it for a year while it was being unbundled from the mothership, um, meeting a lot of different people, going to conferences and things like that, so that was 2014, 
And then when it, when really the efforts were to now to commercialize it, um, you know, then I met Lisa in January of 2015, um, and have been involved now since then. Yeah, we. I was looking for a CEO after it was clear Justin did a great job getting it to a certain point. It was clear that this thing was, you know, at least we thought it was clear that this thing. Um, had some potential and I was interviewing a lot of CEOs and could not find the right person I interviewed a lot of people here, here was the call I would get hey, I've got this great guy I've known him for a long time he's my neighbor he's my friend he's my brother-in-law he brilliant big job at this company and he's just tired of running this big division of this big company and wants to be an entrepreneur and I would meet with this so-called you know um, want to be entrepreneur uh, who did have a big job and had done great things and was a really smart person. And, um, and, I'd be like, and I would tell them about it and they'd be like, this is great, here's how I do it, Here, here's how I would approach it. And then of course they immediately wanted to um, make the same salary that they had made working in the big job at the big company. And it was a really great filter <laughs> for yeah. understanding um, What's, if somebody really understood what a startup was. Um, so um, I, of course, had heard of Pam, the legendary Pam Springer. And uh, we had met occasionally along the way as female um, executives in Columbus are sort of, we, we bump into each other occasionally. Um, and somebody said, you know, she talked to Pam, she left Manta. And I called Pam just, you know, for a, um, just, just for um, some potential consulting advice and to work on the project and we met. and and uh, had a, a meeting of the minds, and Pam went away to do some consulting work on this and called me up a couple weeks later and came back and said, it's got legs, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. That was yep. January 2015. That was January 2015. So that's just been our yeah. rocket ship ever since then. It's really been, it, you know, it's, it's one of those situations, so we patrol, monitor, and enforce these price policies for brands so that they can retain that margin so their sellers can properly advertise the product, support the product. So us as consumers don't get confused when we see all this wide variety of pricing. It's like I'm just going to pull out my phone and see what else, what a better price I can get. If that happens, there's actually breakage in the channel, right? It's a bad experience because ultimately you might buy from an unauthorized seller, you didn't even know it, and then something happens, you go back and they can't do warranty work, they can't take it back. I mean, there's lots of reasons why. So the good news is now, you know, we are growing very fast. As I talked about earlier, we had 16 people um, and our customer base is just, you know, unbelievable brands that have now um, either come to, to want to do an automated version of MAP because historically a lot of people would use Google. Let me see who's finding my, uh, who's selling my products and I'll monitor it that way. Clearly that's not a scalable solution. So we've got a really great product um, with very talented people that do really hard jobs where we patrol every three hours the entire web, including all the marketplaces, um, and um, on the front end make it very easy for um, brand owners to watch their authorized sellers, identify who's the unauthorized seller so they can use our case management to contact them and um, keep their channels clean. Yeah, it's a brilliant concept. So, are there any large competitors out there, or any competitors branching up since you guys have broken into the space? Yeah, there there are um, there are large competitors. The biggest competitor was doing it manually, but then after that, there were larger competitors, and those are the exact customers that we actually target because those are educated customers who currently have a budget, and we are winning a majority of the time against those. So yeah, so that's a competitive market for sure. And um, 
there's there is competitive in terms of the people, um, the firms that are, are saying they can do it. Um, what we're finding though is that our product is so much better than their product that really when it comes down to it, we lose very few and it's never because the product's better than Yeah, ours. and it's because the product market fit and it, right. it, it was built from the inside out, right? Because it had to do the job and there were people who had to use the product in order to do the job and then you spin that out and it's a really good product versus a product manager going on a whiteboard right. and kind of put something together never having had to use the product to do the job. It was really different and so it's really elegantly put together in a simplistic kind of way but, at the, but there's heavy duty lifting happening underneath as you would expect in order to manage the web which is a pretty dynamic place. Right? Right. We had the luxury of five years of it living and incubating really within this bigger company. So it was both the advantage of it had to work for us. So literally, if it didn't work, we'd say, go change this. Like, yeah. Overnight, I, you know, you'd walk down the hall to the developer and say, make it do this instead of that, or add this to it instead of, you know, and create this report and not that one, and automate this and that. And so literally, incrementally, um, we were able to develop it without the pressure of it being its own company. We just made it a little bit better every year for five years. So by the time we spun it out, it was fairly robust. It wasn't as pretty as it needed to be right away, but it worked. Uh, it worked better than, um, than the product that the big company had. And uh, we also, I think, got a little, you know, uh, success is um, mostly hard work and just a little bit of luck. There's almost always a little bit of luck. And I think in our case, we, had a, we got a little lucky that the big company really tripped and stumbled. Right when we were launching, um, and uh, that worked, that very much worked to our advantage. I think we would have gotten the same place eventually because our product was just better, but they made it a little easier for us. I think so. You know, that's the things that happen in startups. You you plan, you plan, you plan, and then then, and then the, you, you just know, get the, lucky too. And then the challenge is, is you know, as you know, you got to stay focused because there's so many things you could can do, um, but you got to really be clear on what are we solving. For. Yeah, and Pam, Pam's it's important so. What is that kind? What what is the Pam type of uh, uh, startup person bring to the table versus me? You know, I'm I'm all I I'm like okay, we can can we do that? Could we turn that into a business? <laughs> I'm sure Pam tries to keep me away from the IT team a little bit because I'm like, hey, get, get what about this? What about this? Could we build this? Could this be its own business? And Pam's like, uh yeah, but let's steer ourselves <laughs> back over here. <laughs> We find that internally with the old company I'm working for now, which is so interesting. In a similar concept, we were built out of another company that was being used for an internal tool. And what I love about that concept and that idea so much is that iterations internally were strictly built, like you said, off your own personal preferences, what's going to work for us, um, margins didn't come into account, or any other feedback that really, in the end, isn't as meaningful as what you're actually using it for. So that's a really interesting concept. Right, and I was going to say, you know, it's kind of like you're taking the most expensive stage of a company and protecting it inside of that larger company. So, um, you know, like you said, incubating it, which yeah. is an interesting concept. It just kind of takes away that, that curve, you know, that startup curve, which is really far down fast. You got, you got the We could sell what we had for the most part versus having to wait right. for we had a product. We had a functional proven product mm -hmm. and customers, customers meaning they were people who were using it and relying on it. They weren't mm -hmm. paying for it yet, right. but they were, I think interestingly, every customer that that we were giving the data to for free immediately started to pay for it, converted to paying for it. And to me, that was incredibly validating. It wasn't like, well, it was great while it was free, but I'm not gonna pay for it. Everyone <laughs> right. pays for it, yeah. Yeah, that's a huge testament. And we, we find the same problem internally with us when we start 
trying to figure out what our problems are and our pain points and our different areas of the company, we start branching out with these new ideas that we can build for companies. And it's always to bring it back to the root because you don't, we don't want to lose that focus when we're trying so hard just to break through to, you know, what our end goal is right now, which is an interesting thing to hear about too. So I'm assuming startups across the country are, are deal with those same juggle balls or whatever you want to. Probably that better analogy than that. Well, trying try to, and, and it's, it's a constant source of um, assessment internally, which is do I, um, do I build, do I buy? I mean, that's some of those decisions. Do I invest in this thing or do I go buy it from somebody else? And then um, do you, you know, having your own software developers versus purchasing um, pre-built software? It's... It, so the decisions are complex and not always as straightforward. There are people who have a philosophy as, oh my gosh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to waste, I'm going to find my one true point of difference. What am I really good at? Where's my value added? And I'm going to buy everything else externally. And our experience has been that um, that's great if nothing changes. Right? But the diversity of having developed, uh, doing all of our own software development is ultimately, even though there are pain points to it, ultimately in both companies, what leads to the success? Like owning it yourself is ultimately what has led to um, to the success. So, um, but those are constant assessments. Right? There's no one easy answer. There's no there's there's no one rule you can follow that, that'll tell you what the right uh, the right answer is. So before we break into some final final question here, what I do want to touch on is you mentioned a stumble from one of your competitors. Um, are you allowed to talk about that a little bit? Kind of what happened with that situation? Well, they quite honestly, yeah, they were trying to. Um, become more robust and more competitive. So they were early, and so they were the only game in town. And so they had big brands, you know, think that what they were doing um, was sufficient. And then when the new kid on the block shows up, you know, basically it's like this is how maps should be monitored and enforced in today's age. With today's technology, it just kind of, they never were able to come through that. So specifically, you know, where we would monitor every three hours around the clock, they're able, best case, to do it once a day, if not once a week. So, I mean, it's really, and then you think, well, how hard is that to do? But if, if you think about taking it, just the site of Amazon and taking a snapshot, however, whatever the, the frequency of time it is, um, on a consistent basis, let alone eBay, let alone the internet at large, finding all these sites, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite a task in terms of making sure you're capturing the right stuff because any given product page is designed by every site differently. And so, you know, it's so basically it was execution um, and their ability to get outside of maybe their technical debt that they had added up over however many courses of years get around that. They weren't able to do that. Yeah, and I think it was exacerbated by the fact that they took a, a big investment. They took a big um, investment from a private equity firm and um, sometimes having too much money leads to bad decision making. Because you don't have to, yes, you get sloppy because you don't have to be so precise. Fewer resources can force you to really focus your thinking about where you need to spend your time and your energy. And we had that and they didn't. They got a big chunk of money and a new CEO didn't fully maybe understand what they were doing and they flailed a lot and just spent money unwisely, they should have by all means been able to crush us. They had the resources to do it. Mm -hmm. They had the side, they had the scale and the resources to do it. They simply executed poorly. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that was a real lucky move for us. It's another interesting concept because I noticed that in a lot of elements of life just in general, like whenever you, I mean, you think about having more time in a day and then getting nothing done when you, when you only have a couple things to do and it spreads out the entire course of the day. But 
So it's like, I wonder what kind of, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think there's probably some type of business theory in there, concept of where small companies who learn how to be very frugal with all their resources. Sure there is. Well, sort of, I forgot what that's, yeah. it's called a, uh, not a, syn, a syndrome or whatever, but if you have till Friday to get something done, some people will get it done on Monday and get it off their list. Other people wait till Thursday to get it done, right? So, you know, you kind of, yeah. yeah, you know, same thing in basketball, you play down to your competition versus rise up. You know, it's interesting how you just kind of, so you've got to be mindful of what will keep you crisp on that, you know, right. for sure. You know, we had a friend once tell us, you know, when it comes to business, a healthy interest payment is good for business because it makes makes you make sound business decisions. Whereas, like you said, if you have too much money, it's like, well, we can just, you know, well, it's cool, don't worry about it, it'll be okay. Well, what's interesting is people, there's a lot of acclimates around how much money you raised. You raised this right. much money, and it's like, well, that's great, but that's just the starting point, right? It's not about that. Right. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to do to raise money, so you don't want to dismiss that, but at the same time, it's sort of like the back end, though, is the part that really matters. Right, and I think you're seeing that. I mean, not to get off on a completely different tangent, we'll move towards kind of our closing questions here. But you see that with Uber right now, where they raised astronomical amounts of money, but their but their core values, their company, and the certain things that um, you know they maybe grown a little slower, might have stuck a little better, um, are coming to light now. Yeah. So what we're saying is, if Oris gets too much money, Conquering Columbus will help you out. Don't worry, we can take some. Duly noted. We don't want to have to do it. You guys are generous. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, kind of moving towards our final questions here. Um, one of the things we always um, like to ask our guests on the show and um, is the theme of our show is live uncomfortably. Uh, we put it on our shirts and to us it means more than just putting yourself outside your comfort zone daily. Um, so what do you two think of when you hear the phrase and uh, how often have you lived uncomfortably in your lifetimes? Hmm. Well, I, I, uh... That's when you know it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, my entire life, so. <clears throat> Well, there are certain aspects that are okay and that they want to live uncomfortably that hopefully, you know, keep you wanting to learn and be curious and kind of keep you on your toes. Um, there are other aspects where I've been very blessed and privileged where I don't have to live uncomfortably because I have a home and I have a roof and I have, you know, a bed and things like that that hopefully... Um, that I'll never take for granted, but I would like to keep that way. <laughs> but, you know, the opportunity to um, be, in, you know, uh, challenged um, in an environment that you're figuring things out and that you commit things to, and when you start making commitments in this kind of work, you're typically involving people who have families, who have commitments, and when you sign up for stuff that you really recognize that when you pick up one end of the stick, the other end comes along with it. So being mindful of that, um, and then you know being responsible for that and then honoring that, I think are all part of being uncomfortable because it's not a given, right? But you should be mindful of what you're doing. So don't be reckless either. So when I, yeah, when I think of uh, living uncomfortably, it, two things come to mind. Um, the first one is has to do with taking risk financially. And I think I probably fit a fairly classic entrepreneurial mold because I, I, I take a lot of what people would define as risk, but I never think of it as risk. Mm -hmm. I just never think of it that way. And I always think, well, what's the worst that could happen? Oh, the worst that could happen? I'm, I'm, I could get a job. Right. I'm not going to go broke. I don't live so large that I'm going to uh, So I'm willing to risk a lot because the downside to me is never very down. My, 
one of the best things that I ask myself and I have taught my kids and the, people, the young people who've worked for me is to ask themselves the question truly, what is the worst thing that could happen? It sounds so trite, but if you really ask it and you really answer the question, most of the time, the answer is not nearly as scary as the feeling of the answer. Like there's this thought of, oh, bad things would happen, but when you really look at what are bad things, are really never really all that bad. So I, that's, I always ask myself that question every step of the way. What's the worst thing that happen? I still ask myself that question. I go, ah, I can live with that. And, and so I live uncomfortably from a business perspective, meaning that I, I'm always reinvesting and I'm always pushing um, for more and bigger and better because that's where I get my jollies. I mean, that's what's fun for me. So that's the first thing that comes to mind is, is living sort of on the edge from a risk perspective. The second thing that comes to mind is, is travel. Um, so we decided when we had our, well, when we got married and then, and then ultimately we had our kids that um, showing our kids the world and seeing the world and going places that make us a little uncomfortable was really important to us, that we never wanted to feel like we were these, you know, passive, comfortable, um, terrified Americans sitting at home, not experiencing the rest of the world. So we made a rule that said we would never go any place that had a McDonald's, which became increasingly more difficult. I was going to say time. that's like a really tough rule. <laughs> well, when we first started, Ray the first the challenge accepted. Right, exactly. Yeah, you kind of ruined my travel, my my travel philosophy. But when we first started, it worked. We would we would go places that you know the Galapagos Islands, or. Um, you know, Morocco, or you know, then, then, it, then it got a little more difficult. So we had to say, okay, we'll only go to cities within countries that don't have McDonald's or Burger King or Kentucky Fried Chicken. Or our rule was no fast food, um, and that really forced us to go places that were a little uncomfortable. Um, and and I, my, it was interesting. My son just got back from an eight-month trip backpacking through Asia. And somebody asked him, well, why Asia? Like, why, most kids go to Europe. Why didn't you go backpack through Europe? And he, his answer was, I wanted to go someplace that would make me um, uncomfortable. I wanted to learn to live with discomfort, not physical discomfort, but the sense of not knowing, not having the language spoken, not knowing where you were going to sleep that night, like having to navigate a very different culture. So those are the two things that I think of when I think of living uncomfortably and one is um, on the edge sort of. You know, taking financial risks and the other one is going places where culturally it's very different and let me tell you that is almost impossible to do these days mm-hmm. yeah and, you know anybody ago it wasn't as difficult but it's really hard now and anybody in the startup world I mean clearly anybody could get a job any you know where and have a nice eight to five so you know by definition people who are trying to do something different there's no guarantees is it going to work you could be doing something else it's like yeah but this is really what really kind of is motivating and, and things like that so yeah I think that resonates pretty well um, at least personally I think from you know how I know my good safe I say the same is that when people kind of they criticize your choice to work for a startup in some circumstances that you know it's gonna work you're not getting health benefits things like that but for me my feedback is always I feel like the attributes that I have as an individual and, and the work that I want to put in at this point in my life for me to not go work for a startup would be to work for a company where eight to five is okay and then what you do just is a bigger risk, you know? It's, it doesn't take a chance of me getting to where I want. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of, you know, it's just like a really strong self-confidence. Like you said, like, it, no matter what happens to me in the future, I'm 100% confident that my abilities, my skills, and who I am as a person is gonna get me to where I wanna be eventually. You know, I might hit some speed bumps, but 
it's a bigger risk to not take those speed bumps than it is to just keep going along. So Well, and I think it's interesting you bring that up because I think one of the things that um, uh, I feel like um, young people today have, there's a real pressure to be an entrepreneur immediately. And I, I, I do want to say to them, and I have said to them, whoa, Nellie, slow down. I think of myself as an entrepreneur. I didn't start my business until I was 35. And I had lots of interesting experiences on the way. It didn't mean I wasn't entrepreneurial. It simply meant that I took the time to learn things that I wouldn't have known otherwise, all the while, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do. But I hate for people to think that if they haven't founded their own business by the time they're 28, that somehow they're a failure or not mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. It's, it's that is so not true. It's Picasso versus Cezanne. Yeah, and I definitely, I felt that own personal struggle internally, not from any outside pressures or anything, but I, I've always wanted to create my own company so bad, and the fact that I haven't done it yet, and I, you know, I had this go by 25, and now it's, you know, by 30, but I, I'm trying to step away and kind of just say, yeah. I'm more of a person with the way my brain works like you, where I know that when I do it, it's going to be branched off of another problem, and I'm just going to see, you know, opportunity and be able to, or be able to create the opportunity myself, so it's going to take a lot of patience, and that's a hard thing to kind of cope with when you see all these other people who are 22 in the news and they built Snapchat or something, you know? Right, there's, you know, there's yeah. like four of those, by the way. Yeah, yeah. 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 they the yeah. And there was also Michael Dell and Bill Gates, and there's, oh, that's not new. There's always some whiz kid genius, you know, those guys all dropped out of college. Yeah, so you never they, read about all the failures right. and things like that yeah. either, which is, you know, just be true to yourself, right? So mm -hmm. you know what success means. Yeah. I think it's a perfect place to wrap up, and uh, we appreciate your time. And it was an awesome story. I think our guests got a lot of this episode. And um, good luck with everything going forward with Oris and Spin Life and Revolutions. And uh, let us know if we can ever help or the community can. Very good. It's been fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot for being here, and uh, thanks a lot for listening, Conquerors. I uh, hope you enjoyed that episode, and we'll talk to you next week. If you liked that episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor. Check out that podcast app you're listening to us on. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out. And it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more and check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again, and if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, 
please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, folks, that's all we got. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.